Genesis chapter 48. And it came to pass after these things that one told Joseph, Behold, thy father is sick. So Joseph took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And one told Jacob and said, one told Jacob and said, Behold, Jacob, one told Jacob and said, Behold, thy son Joseph cometh unto thee. And Israel, the other name for Jacob, the name that God gave to Jacob, Israel strengthened himself and sat upon his bed. At this time, Jacob is approximately 147 years of age. He's sick. He is on what will prove to be his deathbed. Word is sent to his son Joseph, who, as you are familiar with by this time, was prime minister of Egypt. And word was sent to him, your father's sick. And so he goes. He goes to see his ailing dad, and he takes with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. When his dad hears the fact that Joseph is on his way, that Joseph is coming in, it says Israel. Israel, his better name, his God-given name. Israel, the name that means governed by God. Israel, verse 2 says, he strengthened himself. That's what a visit can do. The impact of a visit to a person who is ailing, to a person who is hurting, to a person who is sick. Something can happen when, when someone comes their way, when someone takes the time, when someone expends the energy, when someone shows up like... Jacob, suddenly he strengthens himself. There's, there's strength surging through him. The fires are kindled within him. And I want to commend you folks, because you are a group of people that does that. I get to hear all the time about people who are hurting, sick, in need, in trouble, dying, whatever it might be. And how people from the fellowship family showed up, came in, expressed love. And over and over again, we hear that there was a surge of strength that came into that hurting person's soul because, because somebody from the body, somebody from the family took the time, made the effort. It's a powerful, powerful ministry that, guess what, any of us can do. We might not all be able to sing like Jeff Thomas sang. We might not be able to do a lot of things like other people do them. But you know what we can? Every one of us can visit someone who's hurting, who's sick, 
who's in need. Joseph did that. And Jacob suddenly felt this surge of strength and he sits up on his bed. And as they come in, Jacob, verse 3, said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and He blessed me and He said to me, Behold, I will make thee fruitful and multiply thee. I will make thee a multitude of people and will give this land of thy seed for an everlasting possession. And now, he goes on to say, Thy two sons, Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, which were born unto thee in the land of Egypt before I came unto thee into Egypt, these two sons are mine, as Reuben and Simeon, my first two born. So these two, Ephraim and Manasseh, they shall be mine. And thy issue, verse 6, Joseph, which thou begettest after them, they shall be thine, they'll be yours, and shall be called after the name of their brethren in their inheritance. As the visitor, Joseph, came in with his two young boys in tow, Jacob strengthens himself. He's blessed by their visit, and now they are going to be blessed because they visited. Jacob was impacted by their visit, but now Joseph and his sons are going to be impacted because of that visit. Something wonderful is about to happen. And that's the way it is. Haven't you found it to be true that when you go to share with somebody who's in need, when you go to share with somebody who's in pain, you might go sort of, oh wow, I don't know if if I'll be able to really help or say the right thing or do enough or whatever it might be. And you find that when you get there, man, you were the one that got blessed. You were the one that was ministered to. You were the one that was impacted. I think we've all discovered that over and over again. We think that we're going to give out, but in reality, we're the ones who get blessed. Haven't you found that to be so? That's why Jesus is so into us ministering. Because He taught us, didn't He? Whatever measure a man gives out, it will be meted back to him. It's in giving out that you get back. It's in praying for the sick that you become healthier. It's in helping out the discouraged that your own emotions begin to soar into heavenly places. It's in explaining truth to others that you begin to see in ways that you never saw previously. Whenever you give out, you get back. And here Joseph shows that he was going to visit his sick dad, but now his sick dad strengthens himself, and his sick dad has this surge of energy and does something amazing. He says, those two boys of yours, Ephraim and Manasseh, I am now adopting. They're mine. Just like Reuben and Simeon, my two oldest boys, so too Ephraim and Manasseh, I am now claiming as my own. Now you would say, huh, is that legal? But you've got to keep in mind, this is tremendous. Because those boys were being elevated and brought into equal status 
with the twelve brothers who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. They were brought into the patriarchal contingency. They were made patriarchs. They were elevated. They were lifted up. Here Jacob says, your two sons, Joseph, are going to now be part of the tribes of Israel. They're mine. And Joseph would look at it in exactly that way. Wow! What a blessing! You take my two boys that were born in Egypt and are dressed like Egyptians, no doubt, and you're bringing them into your family, Dad. It's a double blessing. A double blessing has been given to me, Dad, because you're taking my two sons and you're moving them into the patriarchal company. They're now going to be tribes. They're going to have a history, a heritage. Their names are going to be recorded for all of eternity. They're going to be key players in in God's economy. Wow! And by the way, this means for you Bible guys, when people say, how many tribes are there in Israel? There's actually 14 tribes. Do you realize that? Because you have the 12 brothers, but then you have Ephraim and Manasseh. Now Ephraim and Manasseh usually take the place of two other tribes in the accounting. One is the tribe of Joseph. You don't hear about the tribe of Joseph because his two sons now step into that slot. Ephraim and Manasseh step into Joseph's slot. Now Joseph, though, does appear again as a tribe, believe it or not, in the book of Revelation. So Joseph will reemerge as a tribe, but basically throughout the Bible, you have... Joseph not being a tribe, but his two sons. So in a sense, it's like a a stock split, you know, a two-for-one deal. Uh, it's It's a winner. Joseph ends up with two. His two boys step into that slot. Well, you say, then you still have, then if you figure it that way, you still have 13. But another tribe is sort of taken out of the numeration, the tribe of Levi. Why? Because the Levites didn't have any territory per se, but they were scattered throughout all of the land and they would be serving as priests. They would be serving as ministers. The Levites would have a high and holy calling, but they wouldn't have a piece of property. There was no place where you would say, hey, that's where the tribe of Levi is located. So if you take away Levi and you take away Joseph and you put in Ephraim and Manasseh, you still have 12 tribes, but there's 14. Does that make sense to you? You're saying, no, but move on. You see. So here these two boys now of his are being brought into the equation. Now, Jacob goes on to say, Joseph, I'm sure, just is standing there with wide eyes and dropped jaw. Whoa, you're adopting my two sons. You're bringing them into this patriarchal place. Awesome, Dad. Awesome. And he goes on to say, as for me, verse 7, when I came from Padan, Rachel died by me in the land of Canaan while we were in the way. When there was yet but a little way to come to Ephrath, I buried her there in the way of Ephrath 
the same as Bethlehem. Then Israel, Jacob, the dying dad, the old man, he beheld Joseph's sons, and he said, Who are these? You say, well, I thought that he just adopted them. Yeah, but as we shall see, his eyes were real bad. And now, as they move a little closer to their granddad, which is which? Who's who? Talk to me, Joseph. Joseph said, these are my sons whom God hath given me in this place. Bring them, I pray thee, to me, and I will bless them. Now the eyes, verse 10, of Israel, Jacob, were dim because of age. He could not see. So Joseph brought them near unto Jacob, and Jacob kissed them and embraced them. And Israel, Jacob, said to Joseph, I had not thought to see thy face, and lo, God hath showed me also your seed. I didn't think I would ever see you, Joseph. I thought you were dead. And now I'm brought into your company. We're living here together as a family, and I get to see your children too. Jacob is just blown away. Exceedingly blessed that day. So Joseph, verse 12, brought them, that is, these sons of his, out from between his knees. The little guys were just kind of, you know, clinging to dad's legs, if you would. And he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Joseph took both them, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and he brought them near unto him. So Manasseh was placed so that Grandpa, Israel, Jacob, could put his right hand on Manasseh. For Manasseh, you see, was the older son. And he would receive that blessing, the firstborn, if you would. And then his younger brother Ephraim would have the left hand of Grandpa Jacob on him. So Joseph puts him in that position. With Manasseh there, positioned so Grandpa Jacob could put his right hand on him, and, and Ephraim so that he could receive the left hand. Well... Israel, Jacob, verse 14, stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head. He did the old crossover trick. He took his hand, and instead of putting it on Manasseh, who was right there, he reaches over and puts his right hand on Ephraim. And then he takes his left hand, verse 14, and he puts it on Manasseh. So he crosses his arms like this, you see. Ever see the Scarecrow and Wizard of Oz? You know, remember that whole, well, anyway, kind of crossing the arms. Well, this concerned, you see, Jacob, pardon me, Joseph greatly. He watches this happen, and he blessed Joseph and said, God, verse 15 God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day, and the angel which redeemed me from evil. And the word angel in your King James Version is capitalized as it should be because it refers to the angel of the Lord. It refers to Jesus Christ. The angel which redeemed me from evil 
Oh, may he bless the lads and let my name be named on them, the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. Let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Well, Joseph, verse 17, saw that his father, Jacob, laid his right hand upon the head of Ephraim. It troubled him. He saw his dad's crossed arms and he was troubled. He was distressed. As the King James puts it, he was displeased. And he held up his father's hand to take it off of Ephraim's head and put it back on Manny's head. He was trying to get this thing straightened. Hey, Dad, you can't see very well. You're a little bit old and you're a bit mixed up here. So he takes his hand and puts it back on Manasseh's head. He tries to do that, to remove it from Ephraim's head and place it upon Manasseh's head. Verse 18. Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father. This is the firstborn. Manasseh, put thy right hand upon his head. Oh, Dad, you're mixed up. You're confused. Dad, this is the firstborn. But his father, verse 19, refused and said, I know it. Son, I understand. I'm not as senile as you may think I am. I know it, my son. I know it, he says. He also, Manasseh, shall become a people. And he also shall be great. Manasseh's going to be a tribe, and, and he's going to be great. But, truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he. Ephraim shall be greater than Manasseh. That's why I crossed my hands. The Spirit of God is revealed to me. That this one, the younger son of yours, Joseph, is going to be the greater. Manasseh is going to be great too. But man, there's a real plan for Ephraim that is greater than what Manasseh will experience, than what Manasseh will do. The younger shall be greater than the older. And his seed shall become a multitude of nations. And that's exactly what happened. Ephraim became the greater tribe by far. Numerically, historically. In fact, when you read through the Bible, the ten northern tribes of Israel. Remember the two southern tribes and the ten northern tribes would eventually split into two nations. The two southern tribes are called what? Judah. And the ten northern tribes are called Israel. But they're also called throughout the Bible Ephraim. Because Ephraim was predominant of the ten northern tribes. Ephraim played the most important role. Ephraim had the greatest impact. In fact, Jeroboam, who led the revolt of the ten northern tribes to break away from the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the two southern tribes, Jeroboam was from Ephraim, wasn't he? So when you read through the Bible, you're going to come across this phrase where God gives prophecies and warnings and exhortations to Ephraim. It's another name for Israel, the ten northern tribes. All that's to say what Jacob said that day came to pass. Joseph, your younger son is going to be greater than your older one. That seems to be the way that God works a lot with these 
characters in the Scriptures. Culturally, traditionally, you know that the elder son, the firstborn, was to receive all the, the benefits, if you would. The greater benefits. The greater position. But the Lord tweaks that a lot. It was Abel who was the blessed one, not Cain. Cain was the older brother, but Abel was the blessed one, the younger son. It was Isaac, the blessed one, not his older brother Ishmael. It was Jacob, the blessed one, not Esau, his older twin brother. It was Joseph, the blessed one, not Reuben, the firstborn. It was Moses, the blessed one, not Aaron, his older brother. The Lord does this throughout the Word, and you'll read many stories and we'll discover many scenes where this is taking place, where the Lord uses the lesser and makes Him the greater, the younger to rule over the older. Why is that? Is the Lord just trying to kind of upset the apple cart and blow people's minds? I think the basic message in that is simply this. What is coming is always better than what has been. We tend to say, oh man, you know, the good old days. The Lord would say, "Mm -mm, the best is yet to come. You might be inclined, I might be inclined, we might be inclined to say, hey, the good old days, the firstborn days, the older times, whatever it was, and the Lord would whisper in my ear saying, I take you, John, from glory to greater glory. What is to come is better than what has already been. The younger shall be greater than the older. That gives me real hope. Because I know, I truly believe that for our fellowship family, for me personally, for my wife Tammy, I believe the best is yet to come. I really truly do. It just seems to be the way of the Lord. If we choose to walk with Him, believe on Him, Stay close to Him. So, we so often see in the Scriptures this this unusual thing in culture's eyes, but it seems to be the way of God. It's what He chooses to do so frequently, the younger. And here, it's true. Ephraim is going to be greater, even though he's younger. Manasseh will be blessed too, but Ephraim shall rule over Manasseh. And that's precisely what happened. So, Verse 20, He blessed them that day, saying, In thee shall Israel bless, saying, God make thee as Ephraim and Manasseh. And He set Ephraim before Manasseh. Joseph, it's going to be a saying in the land. It's going to be a blessing amongst all the people. May God bless you like He's blessed Ephraim and Manasseh too. 
And now, verse 21. Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I die. But God... Oh, we camped on that Sunday. If you weren't here for our topical text, perhaps you might want to get the tape. I die, but God. But God, Joseph, I die, son. I'm dying. My days are numbered. My time is up. I die, but God, but God, but God shall be with you. Bring you again unto the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to thee one portion above thy brethren, which I took out of the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. And as we saw Sunday, that's spoken of prophetically. Jacob never took that property himself. There's no record of it anywhere. But he spoke prophetically through you. And through your offspring, there will be territory taken. And it will be as though I took it. Because I've had a role to play. I've had a patriarchal part. I've provided a base. And now, that land will be taken. And even though it's not actually taken by Jacob, it's accounted to Jacob. Well, we talked about that Sunday. If you're interested in that, you're saying no. But if you might want to do a study in that and see how God will work in your family and continue on your life through your children. Get the tape. But let's go into chapter 49 at least get a good start on it. So Jacob called unto his sons, and he said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you that which shall befall you, watch this, in the last days. Gather yourselves together, and hear, sons of Jacob, hearken to Israel your father. Listen to me, boys. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen to you in the last days. This phrase, in the last days, is used 14 times in the Old Testament. Every time it deals with prophecy. Rabbinical writers note that every time this phrase is used, it talks about the last days of planet Earth. Genesis 49 is one of those incredibly rich passages that deals with Bible prophecy. He gathers his boys who will be the tribes of Israel. They are the nation of Israel collectively. And he says, I'm going to tell you now, while I'm on my deathbed, it's about time for me to go, but I'm going to tell you boys what is going to be in the last days. Genesis 49 is a powerful prophetic passage. If you're interested in Bible prophecy, this is a real key, key study. And I'll simply scratch out an outline for you tonight that might stimulate your thinking that you can study through, think about, ponder, and glean more from. 
but it deals with the last days of Israel, the nation. And what is happening here is amazing. Let's take a look. He, he gathers his sons, and there's no real order as far as chronology goes to the way he's going to talk to his boys, which is unusual because usually if you're pronouncing blessing, you would deal with the firstborn and then the secondborn and the thirdborn chronologically. Jacob doesn't do that here, which right away is unusual. Because, you see, his purpose is not simply to bless his sons specifically, but to tell a story of what is going to be of the nation from the earliest days to the end times. And there's a beautiful chronological flow here. You can see the entire history of the nation of Israel concerning the days before Messiah's first coming, to Messiah's first coming, to their rejection of Messiah, to their going into the tribulation, and finally, the restoration of the kingdom. It's all here. Let's take a look and see. Reuben, verse 3, Thou art my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength the excellency of dignity, the excellency of power. I'm sure Reuben was saying far out. Dad, you really got it right. That's me. I am your firstborn. The beginning of strength, the excellency of dignity, you bet. <laughs> but then he goes on. You are as unstable as water, and you shall not excel. Because... You went up to your father's bed and defiled thou it. He went up to my couch, Jacob said. What he's referring to is what Reuben did 40 years previously. When Rachel died, Jacob's beloved wife, Reuben grabbed Jacob's handmaiden, Bilhah, and had sexual relations with her off the Oval Office. No. And it was terribly, terribly wrong. <laughs> because Bilhah was the one person who could have perhaps truly, really comforted Jacob at a time when he was mourning the loss of his wife, Rachel. Instead of allowing her to fill that role, Reuben took advantage of the situation, wormed his way in, And no doubt he thought, hey, got away with that. Forty years later. Forty years later. This is real sobering. Forty years later, it comes back to bite him. Speaking in the Spirit, under the anointing, his dad says, you had every opportunity, you're my firstborn but you're as unstable as water. And what you did 40 years ago 
has caused you to be less than what you would have been had you not partaken in that sin. Sin stinks. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Reuben, you're unstable. Therefore, you will not excel. Sorry. You're not going to excel. In this, for you guys that are following this through with me, if you're interested in Bible prophecy, this speaks of the earliest days of Israel's history, and they are, number one, a disappointing people. A disappointing people. Israel, the firstborn of God, if you would, His chosen people, His nation, what did they do right as soon as they were birthed as a nation? Coming out of Egypt, crossing through the Red Sea, going to Mount Sinai, they committed spiritual fornication. Here they were firstborn. But what did they do while Moses was up on the mountain getting the word of the Lord for this group of people? They were fornicating. Just like Reuben. They were dancing nakedly around a golden calf. They were partying. They were fornicating. They were sinning. They were into idolatry. Physical fornication, spiritual fornication, they were really blowing it. It was a disappointment. Moses was so disappointed that he threw down those tablets. You know the story. A disappointing people. Yeah, that's how it started. Just like Reuben is the firstborn, so too Israel, the nation that God called and delivered from Egypt would be unstable as water, committing fornication, just like Reuben. Which led to the next couple of verses. Simeon and Levi, he says now, after Reuben hears that and he goes, oh man, oh boy. And his heart must have felt sick. But he knew it was true. He looks at Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi are brethren, instruments of cruelty or in their habitations. O oh, my soul, come thou not into their secret, unto their assembly, mine honor, be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they digged down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them and will scatter them. Why? Simeon and Levi, two brothers. Remember their story in Genesis 34? These were the two boys. This story is alluding to that fact when Dinah, their sister, was raped by Shechem from the city of Shechem. We talked about that Sunday. It was Simeon and Levi who hatched this plan to get all the Shechemites to circumcise their, their men And when the men were in pain, they unsheathed their swords, Simeon and Levi did, and chopped up the Shechemites. They slaughtered them. Jacob's alluding to that, referring to that. And he says, because of that, Simeon and Levi, 
because you're self-willed. You, you didn't wait on God. You didn't look for advice. You just went out and did your thing in cruelty, in rashness. You depended upon yourself. You tried to make justice in your own energy because you're self-willed. You're going to be scattered. This number two, if you're taking notes for you Bible students, you can still see. First, a disappointing people. Secondly, a dispersed people. That would be the second phase in Israel's history. They would be scattered and dispersed. Two times, just like two brothers, Simeon and Levi, so too, two times. Who? The Assyrians, 722 B.C., and the Babylonians, 586 B.C. The Assyrians and the Babylonians would cause, cause the people of Israel to be taken away into captivity. The two big captivities, the two big dispersals in the Old Testament days, that, that, that's what happened. After they were a disappointing people, they began to depend upon their own alliances with other nations. They didn't look to God. They didn't trust in God. But they made agreements with the Egyptians. They looked to their own ingenuity. They were self-willed, just like Simeon and Levi in the story. And consequently, because they were self-willed, the people of Israel, they too were dispersed, scattered, taken into captivity. But after being a disappointing people and a dispersed people, good news. Good news. After their dispersion, Judah, verse 8, Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be on the neck of thine enemies. Thy father's children shall bow down before thee. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down. He couched as a lion. And as an old lion, who, who shall rouse him up? The scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the beginning of the people be, ah, binding his foal unto the vine, and his ass's colt unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes shall be red with wine. His teeth shall be white with milk. Now we see the mention after being a disappointed people and a dispersed people, now they could be a delivered people because Shiloh would come. It speaks of Jesus' first coming. Jesus was from what tribe, gang? The tribe of Judah. It's talking about Jesus here. The story is perfect in its chronology. All kinds of things we could explore and don't have time to suffice it to say he's seen as a leader in verse 8. Jesus, Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's seen as a leader that he is going to have his hand upon the neck of his enemies. And they shall bow down to him. He's seen as a leader in verse 8. He's seen as a lion in verse 9. A lion who is unstoppable. He is seen as the Lord in verse 10. This is important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Shiloh is a name for Jesus. Its root is shalom, peace. It speaks of the Prince of Peace. It's a name for Messiah. 
Interesting. Because Josephus tells us something that's most intriguing to me, and that is the rabbis understood this. They understood this text. They understood Shiloh would come, and it was this prophecy that, set, that kept them going, that the scepter, verse 10, shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And that is why in the year 12 A.D., the rabbis ran through the streets of Jerusalem, tearing their clothes, throwing dirt in the air, screaming in anguish. Because they felt that the Lord didn't keep His word. They were troubled by this prophecy. They understood this to be taken literally, that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. It was in 12 A.D., Josephus tells us, that the Romans who were occupying the land and in the city of Jerusalem, the Romans, they took away from the Jewish Supreme Court the ability to mete out capital punishment. And that is why, of course, when Jesus would die, when Pontius Pilate said, you guys handle this, they said, we can't do that. It's against the law for us to mete out capital punishment. You've got to do that, Pilate. It's your responsibility. We can't do it legally. Now the rabbis taught that you could claim that you were in control, that you had a degree of sovereignty as a nation, if you could execute capital punishment. But once that was taken from you as a nation, once you were no longer able to mete out that supreme punishment, if another group said you can't do that any longer, that would mean that you lost your sovereignty, the scepter of power. So in the year 12 AD, the rabbi said, oh no, when the decree was read in Jerusalem that you can no longer take capital matters into your own hands. We've lost the scepter, they said. We've lost the scepter. And in Genesis chapter 49, the prophecy is, the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. And Shiloh isn't here. So they thought. Because at that same time, when that decree was passed down from Rome, and the Jews, the rabbis, were so distraught and ripping their clothes... At that same time in Jerusalem, in the same city, was a 12-year-old boy in the temple, astounding the teachers, the rabbis, the doctors who were there discoursing with him as they would ask him questions and as he would dialogue with them. They could not believe what they were hearing. Shiloh was there as a 12-year-old boy in the temple the very day when the scepter was taken away. The scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh, till the Prince of Peace comes. And he was there, you see. And so we see him in verse 10 as the, the Lord. He is the leader. He is the lion. Verse 10, he's the Lord. Verse 11, he's the landowner. This idea of binding his foal, his ass's colt, washing his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes red and his teeth white. It all speaks of him purchasing the property, which he did with his own blood, his garments splattered, 
His eyes red. His teeth white. It's all the language of redemption. It's all the language of Jesus. And I wish I could go into this tonight, and I won't. But you can meditate on it if you choose and cross-reference it if you would, and you will see an incredible portrayal of Jesus. He is spoken of here. First as the leader, and then as the lion, and then as the Lord, and then as the landowner, the possessor of all. So we see, again, first of all, a dispersed, pardon me, a disappointing people, and then a dispersed people, then a delivered people. Shiloh has come, the deliverer is here. But what happened? They rejected him. We will not have this man rule over us. Away with him, they said, as a nation. They rejected him, crucified him. And so, Zebulun, verse 13. Zebulun shall dwell at the haven of the sea. He shall be for a haven of ships. His border shall be unto Zion. Zidon is up in Lebanon today. Zebulun shall be a haven for the sea. It speaks of an exiled people, shipped out, if you would. That's the idea here. After they rejected Jesus and said, we will not have this man rule over us, the next thing that happened, within 40 years, the Romans came down, destroyed Jerusalem, burned the temple, and the Jewish people were dispersed and scattered. They were a people who were exiled. The country ceased to be. The Jews were scattered. The city of Jerusalem destroyed. The name was erased off the maps, and it was called Elia Capitolina from that point on for many centuries, trying to eradicate even the memory of Jerusalem. The Romans were determined to eradicate the memory. They changed the name of Jerusalem, and they called the country no longer Israel, no longer Judah, but they called it Palestine, which means Philistine country, after the enemies of Israel. They were exiled across the seas, just like Zebulun speaks of. Around the world, they were exiled. And after being an exiled people, they were exploited. The story goes on, verse 14, Issachar is a strong ass couching down between two burdens. He saw that rest was good. The land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant unto tribute. After they were exiled... If anything happened to the Jews, wherever they went, they prospered. Stubborn, a strong donkey, still stubborn, still resistant, still refusing to recognize Yeshua, Jesus, as Messiah. But yet, wherever they went, this strong donkey, the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulders to bear. The idea there is of a donkey loaded down with goods, and that's true. The Jewish people went into every corner of the world, into virtually every culture on the planet, and they prospered. They prospered. But because of their prosperity, they were persecuted. They were blamed. They were burdened. They were exploited. The pogroms of Russia... 
the concentration camps of Nazi Germany. The stories go on and on, not just in recent days, but all through their history, wherever these people went, because of their rejecting of the Lord, they were exiled from the land and they were exploited. And you who know anything about history know the story of the wandering Jews. Blessed, prosperous, successful in so many ways, and yet, yet, Becoming, becoming a servant. A strong donkey, loaden down, laden down with goods, but a servant, exploited, used, persecuted. Verse 16, now we get into the future things. Dan, verse 16, shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a servant, by the way, an adder or a poisonous snake in the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider shall fall backward. Oh, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Dan, Dan speaks of a poisoned people. What do you mean, John? A snake is going to come out of the tribe of Dan. After they are exiled, a snake is going to come on the scene who will smite, who will bite, who will poison. And that is why the rabbis to this day believe that a false Messiah will appear. We, as Christians, call Him the Antichrist. And they pinpoint the tribe of Dan. He will come from the tribe of Dan because of this prophecy. From Dan. From the tribe of Dan. That tribe that was in the northernest part of Israel, closest to the the world, if you would, the pagans, if you would, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Dan, the tribe that constantly got trampled on by those pagans and became the most pagan of the tribes because of that. Dan, from Dan, will come this one, a serpent, who smites and bites and poisons. Sneaky, treacherous, sly, dangerous. It's Antichrist. I, too, strongly believe that Antichrist will have a linkage to the tribe of Dan, but that's another story that we'll get into at another time. But it speaks of a poisoned people. And after that, he, he, he cries in verse 18, Oh, I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. You see, you can hear the heart cry of, of Israel, of Jacob. Oh, this Antichrist, this poisonous snake, this slimy serpent. I'm waiting for your salvation. But you see, after Antichrist appears in his slithery, deceptive, treacherous, poisonous way, and the Jewish people first ride on him, believe in him, pin their hopes to him, he's going to bite them. They're going to be bucked off that horse, just like it says here. They're going to think, oh, anti they're not going to call him Antichrist. But, oh, you are wonderful, you're awesome, world leader solver of our problems, but he'll bite them. And after being poisoned, then verse 19, Gad, Gad, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. 
there's going to be persecution. A persecuted people. After poisoned people, Dan, comes Gad. A persecuted people. Because Antichrist will lead a worldwide persecution against the Jewish people. His hatred will be venomous against Israel. He will bring His troops to Israel to destroy Jerusalem. The battle of Armageddon will culminate that whole entire event. But Antichrist and the forces of Satan will mobilize the world to come into the valley of Megiddo, to come right down to the very city of Jerusalem to destroy it. And that's what this speaks of. God, a troop shall overcome him, but, parenthetically, what? He shall overcome at the last. Persecuted people. Verse 20, Out of Asher, Asher, out of Asher, his bread shall be fat, he shall yield forth royal dainties. They're going to be, even while there's this poisoned people and persecuted people, they're going to be a protected people because in the tribulation, Revelation chapter 7 says, there's going to be a work of the Holy Spirit. 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are raised up and the Jewish people begin to see and understand the truth. Elijah and Moses, they're ministering themselves in the city of Jerusalem. Things are going to be happening. They're going to be fed, if you would. They're going to be protected. They're going to be fed royal dainties, real truth, king's food, angel's food, that's the idea. And they're going to be tucked away eventually. They're probably in the rock city of Petra or thereabouts, Basra. When Antichrist is seeking to destroy them in anger, God will carry them away into the wilderness, into the place that He has prepared for them, the Scripture says, and there they shall be hidden and taken care of royally. That's what this speaks of. And Naphtali, verse 21, after this persecuted people and protected people, Asher the protected people, Naphtali is a hind let loose. He's a deer. He giveth goodly words. They're a preaching people. What happens? You know the story. After Antichrist appears, after the persecution begins, after the people of Israel are being worked on by the Lord and fed from the Lord, they're going to be Naphtali. They're going to be a preaching people, like I alluded to earlier. Revelation chapter 7, 144,000 evangelists, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes raised up, going throughout the world, preaching the gospel. They're going to have goodly words. They're going to be let loose. They're going to be really dear, like a hind. The word hind means deer. Yeah. They're going to be sharing good words. Yes! During the tribulation period, people will get saved, praise the Lord. Because Naphtali, Naphtali, that is, the Jewish people are going to be a preaching people. This is part of their destiny. And then, and then, after we've seen them be a poisoned people, a persecuted people, but a protected people, and a preaching people, then, 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 comes the virtuous ruler. You know that Joseph is a picture of who in our story? Who? Who? Yes, of course, Joseph is a fruitful bough. 
even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. We talked about that, and I'm not going to do it again. I blacked out last time. It's dark again. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well, indeed. Branches running over the wall, oh yes. The archers have sorely grieved him. They shot at him. They hated him. This speaks of Jesus. But his bow abode in strength. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father who shall help thee. And by the Almighty who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, and the blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Oh, they shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. The one that was rejected, separated from, blessings will abound on him. You see, now this speaks of the second coming of Christ. Are you following the story? Do you see the order? After the tribulation, the poisonous antichrist, the persecution, the preaching that will take place. But after seven years of that time that Jeremiah chapter 30 calls the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation, the greater than Joseph, the one whom Joseph pictures. We've talked about this at length, over 88 references I've given you at least concerning the similarities between Joseph and Jesus. He's coming. He's coming. The virtuous ruler. The virtuous ruler is coming. And this speaks of that. We don't have time to explore it. Simply, if you wish, think on it. Read through it. And we'll talk more about it probably this Sunday. Because it's too good. And after the virtuous ruler, Jesus, spoken of in this blessing of, of Joseph. Jesus comes back the second time. Then lastly, a victorious remnant. The last son is to be blessed, Benjamin. Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey. At night he shall divide the spoil. Once Jesus comes back, spoken of in the blessing of Joseph, the second time, then there's going to be a victorious remnant. There's going to be a victorious reign. Benjamin, little tiny Benjamin, is going to scarf. There's going to be a reign. The Jewish people that others have despised and looked down on and have castigated and persecuted, the world put them down and some Christians wiped them out with their theology. But I'll tell you the story that is really reality. They're going to get their spoil. God is not through with the Jew. God is not through with the people of Israel. And like Benjamin, He in the morning shall devour the prey. Those that would prey on Him. I don't mean P-R-A-Y. Those that would 
P-R-E-Y, on Him. There's two groups of people in the world today. Those that are praying on Israel and those that are praying for Israel. And I pray, P-R-A-Y, that every one of you is one that's praying for Israel. Because God is committed to them. This is a chapter that speaks of God's divine design, His prophetic plan from beginning to end. As Israel himself, Jacob, gathers his sons around and he blesses them or warns them. But in that we see the entire plan of Israel unfolded. The rabbis have understood this for centuries. Christian Bible teachers ought to as well. God is not through with the Jew. And the reason that I am so hugely big on this issue is because our brother Paul says, look, Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is how you know that nothing will separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, Romans 8 ends. And here's how you can know. Look at the Jew. God is not through with them. Oh yes, they've gone through and are going to go through difficulties and problems. But even when they are fickle, God will prove Himself faithful. He has made promises to Abraham, promises to Isaac, promises to Jacob, and He will fulfill them. And that's why I can say, hey, if God is faithful to the Jew as I read their story with all of their foibles and frailties, then I know that, hey, He'll be faithful to me too. He'll be faithful to me too. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 9, 10, and 11. That's why it's in there. After eight chapters of talking about God's grace and goodness and salvation, he says, and just to make sure you understand that God is faithful to do what He says He will, look at Israel. And here we see it. The plan. Right now we see them, if you're marking this, we see them in the place of Issachar. Verse 14, exploited, kicked around. Our own State Department. Well, that's another story. Next, we'll see them poisoned by the deception of Antichrist, whom they will embrace initially, but he'll bite them. Then they'll be persecuted in a way that will be the worst in history. But they'll also be fed at that time, protected, a portion. They'll hear the truth. And they'll be preaching, just like the story says. And then Jesus is coming back. And we're coming with Him. And we're going to rule and reign on the earth and we're going to marvel at the blessings that are on our Lord and the reign of our Lord as He rules in the city of Jerusalem. And we are going to see the promises of God come to pass and we're going to marvel and glorify Him. And Benjamin shall raven as a wolf. And there shall be righteousness. There shall be peace. And we will be with our bridegroom at that time, reigning with him. 
And then, and then after a thousand years, reigning with Him, ruling on earth as Jesus is calling the shots from Jerusalem. At the end of that thousand years comes a new heaven and a new earth that's beyond description. And we're going to ever be with the Lord. I get tickled just thinking about it. They asked that old crusty preacher Vance Havner when he was in his upper 90s. What keeps you going? He said, it's the hope of death that keeps me living so long. I'm just so excited about dying, I just don't die. I'm so excited about what's coming, man, it just keeps me going. I like that. I'm just so excited about what's coming, it just keeps me going and going and going. Oh, I want to enter into heaven with a full reward. I I want to go to heaven, yes, but my, I realize that only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. I want all the rewards that the Lord would have for me because I know they're important in His eyes, in His economy. I I don't want to short-circuit my life. I don't want to mess up that plan. I want to go through life doing everything I can for the Lord, trusting in Him, relying on Him, working for Him, so that when, if He should tarry, when I'm 95 or 100 or whatever it may be, and I finally am taken to heaven in the middle of a sermon, I can hear Him say to me, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. May that be true for each of us. Enter in to the joy of the Lord. I don't want to go in as a pauper having wasted my time or I don't want to short circuit His plan. Mm -mm. No way. No way, no how. Uh Uh-uh. Can't be. What I do, what you do, what we do in these next years should the Lord tarry will affect what we do and who we are for the next gazillion years Don't blow it. Don't spin your wheels. Don't waste your time. Don't try to get ahead of God. Don't take things into your own hand. Because the plan of God is unfolding, just like Genesis 49. The time is coming when all things shall be given account of, and we shall stand before Him at the Bema seat, and He'll give out those rewards, and He'll say, Hey, well done! You did good! And we'll say, oh Lord, I didn't. And he'll say, yeah, you did. Reward for this and reward for that because you hung in there. You were faithful to me. If somebody in ancient days was talked to about Genesis 49 and said, this is the plan, this is the plan for your nation, if you would have talked to them 4,000, 6,000 years ago. No! Can't be this idea of Shiloh coming and being rejected and our being shipped out and all the rest. we, We would say, but it is, it's true. And there are those of us that sit here tonight that say, no way we're really going to be ruling and reigning with Christ. No way it's really going to happen. Yeah, it is. 
And this chapter is for you, for me, to say God's program and God's plan, it comes to pass. Get on board. Hold on tight. Stay on course. Don't give up. We're racing towards a destiny that is fixed and certain and absolute. Hold on. Stay strong. Get ready. Get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. Because the best is coming. The younger shall rule over the elder. What's to come is always better than what has been. And that makes me happy. It makes my face grim. <laughs>